feels like empty numbness. When I look away, the space expands. Concentrate. Fill the space with an image. The muscle fibers contract and tighten. The absence of sensation causes my right leg to become invisible. My eyelids feel heavy. But when I look down at my leg, I see it as though it belongs to a different body. When I look down, my toes were crushed into the step in front of me. The leg is thrown forward onto the next step. It's the space where I feel as though my leg is missing a space that I can occupy. Maybe I should just get off the stairs. Maybe I should come back again and try in a couple weeks. (sighs) Breathe through your hip. Let the breath fill and expand throughout that space like echoing sonar. Breathe in through the nose and send it through your forehead and out through the space where your left hip was left behind. This try, this try though, this try, this one for sure. I can hear my breath from the inside out, but it's like a static echo. When we look at the world around us, how it is built, the design of environments, use of technology, stairs, toilets, doorways, public transport, healthcare, employment. In its simplest form, we see a body, and in its most complex form, the construction of a body. Such a constructed body is based off of an assumed majority or norm, branching back to industrialization and eugenics. What about the one billion people in the world who are differing, or varying, or dissimilar, or unalike, or divergent? My name is Callum Glendening-Clark. 
and I live in a divergent body as a walking paraplegic and a rider with a brain injury. Pardon the paradox. I aim to raise awareness about one of the largest minority groups in the world. This podcast will explore and discuss the barriers surrounding accessibility and possibilities when it comes to disability support, recovery, and community. It will focus on individuals' experiences identifying and navigating these barriers, along with the services in place to assist in this process. It will also discuss the emotional as well as physical impact of these barriers in the day-to-day lives and experiences of people with a disability. Stephanie Burr and Theo St. Francis are two people whose unique stories and expertise helped lead them to release a book called From the Ground Up, which gives spinal cord injury athletes and any movement practitioners guidance on how to harness their own potential when it comes to spinal cord injury rehab and recovery. Theo and Steph met at one of the top spinal cord injury recovery centers in the U.S., With a combined 15 years of learning, they came together to start the project Zebrafish Neuro and write the book, From the Ground Up, a human-powered framework for spinal cord injury recovery. After inpatient discharge from the hospital and rehab, it is a common experience for the responsibility of finding recovery resources to fall on the individual with a disability or their friends and families. If you are at home and want to see what this is like, just Google spinal cord injury recovery and see what comes up. It's largely surgical interventions or medical information as opposed to recovery processes or things that you can actually do now. If you are having this experience or know someone who is or are even years into your injury and want to start to integrate recovery into your life, you can find Steph and Theo's projects under the Instagram handle zebrafishneuro or on their website, www.zebrafishneuro.com. It is worth me mentioning that chapter one of the book is available to access through these online platforms I mentioned for free. This is only one of the reasons why this resource is so important to me and has had such a massive impact on my life and my drive to increase awareness around this disability. I feel extremely privileged for Steph and Theo to have given me their time and thoughts in this conversation. The recording you hear was recorded from three different locations simultaneously, so please pardon the variation in sound quality. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Okay, guys, so if you could please explain how you came to the name Zebrafish Neuro and its metaphorical purpose. Kind of about the time that Theo and I were formulating Zebrafish, the research studies were just coming out about how the animal Zebrafish were able to heal their own spinal cords. 
So zebrafish, if you didn't know, are used in a lot of medical research because of their, I think they have a, like a quick, um, gestational period or quick kind of lifespan. And so they can study them, but then they're also transparent so they can see, uh, interventions happen in action. So, cause in vivo, so they'll, they're alive and then you can still see what's going on in the inside. So while all this research was coming out about spinal cord injury repair and the zebrafish, we just said, you know, that's kind of, first of all, kind of trendy. We're in Bay Area in California, so it's all like tech kind of names. But then um, we thought, well, how cool is that, that you can heal your own spinal cord, so self-healing. Also, feeling and seeing the transformation in real time. Yeah. And then it kind of came out later between, you know, the play on words of zebra and fish and Theo and I's partnership and so many metaphors with that as well with Theo being a swimmer and me sort of being the land animal and I'm I'm very black and white and systems and Theo is a little bit more fluid and um, (laughs) I call it slinky. (laughs) So... (laughs) Um, it kind of works both in the I'm context. Pretty, I'm pretty wobbly when I stand is what she's trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> so it yeah. sort of sort of looks like a fish out of water sometimes. <laughs> flapping back and forth. Yeah, so the oh. metaphor is quite, you know, literal on the play of words and then also represents the research that's going on or the, re- yeah. the research that's currently going on, but then kind of at the forefront when we were starting Zebrafish. Yeah, I love the name and I love this the part that you touched on about the transparency of the zebrafish as well because then the development of the tool is tra- is hope I I'm guessing hoping for that transparency to illustrate the process so people can see it's visible or tangible in some way as opposed to just bombarding people with information. Yeah, you 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 hit that one on the head, Callum. And yeah. one of the parts about that is being able to watch the process of healing occur uh, in the body of a zebrafish as it's healing its spinal cord in the several weeks that it can do that from a full severing. Mm-hmm. But uh, analogously for uh, us, um, one of the things that we are so big on, which I think we'll get here much more into in a minute, is this notion that uh, from from awareness, all things come and yeah. how being able to watch what's going on in your own body as it's happening, assess it, make judgments based on that, on your own path toward neurological rehabilitation uh, is yeah. such a uh, an instrumental uh, part of a successful recovery program. Yeah, um, that's the kind of next thing that really interests me as well is how what brought you both not only to come together to start the project but to step back and start to listen i mean yourself there with the spinal cord injury was that a part of the thing that introduced you to that process or you know yeah yeah without without question um yeah, so what what compelled me to listen? Well, it's a relevant question yeah. because in the beginning, um, like so many people who, you know, just want to get back on their feet, they just want to get better, you know, they've yeah. had their life turned upside down because they were they were living things uh, normally and at some point um, they have this paralyzing injury and, you know, so many things are thrown upside down. Um, 
and once you once you come out of the hospital and maybe you've had some recovery or maybe not really any particular muscle recovery to speak of, but yeah. uh, at least things are stabilized such that you're beginning to think about how am I going to rehabilitate from this injury? Um, you know, there is a lot of emphasis on getting the function back and yeah. becoming unparalyzed. Um, yeah. which makes sense because who wouldn't want that? Um, of, of course, of course that's what you're focused on. Um, yeah. but I, you know, for my own process, which is what I can speak to, um, it took my really coming to terms with the fact that just trying to get standing again was never going to, um, bring me back the life I wanted, nor was it even going to get me standing again. I really yeah. had to... I really had to rewind in terms of my priorities and take things back to the fundamentals um, in order to, you know, perhaps I could use that standing or that walking posture as my end goal. Maybe that was kind of like way off in the distance. Yeah. But I had to release the standing posture as an immediate goal in uh -huh. order to focus on the basics so that in the end I could get to that place. Um, yeah. And that, that, you know, you know, kind of begrudgingly, uh, because, you know, I'm thinking I just want to get standing and here I am rolling around on the floor, um, back and forth. That is really what, what forced me to, to learn to listen to my body. And, and in the end, it's what made the most difference for my recovery. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that's so interesting. Uh, what compelled you to listen to listen stuff? Well, before I jump into that story it's not quite as not, not quite as interesting but theo, yeah. theo and i talked a long time ago about the language that's used around sci recovery and almost kind of um aggressive words like conquer paralysis oh, fight yeah. fight paralysis fight sci overcome is my least favorite uh, overcome is yeah. interesting. <laughs> oh, hang, hang on to that. We're going to talk about that in a second. So, yeah. yeah. And, and Theo and I, we, when we kind of like, we're looking at the language that's used around recovery and how you describe being, being recovered. If that ever, ex you know, is a state that ever yeah. comes. Yeah. Um, like why are, why does it have to be a battle? Why does it have to be hard? Why can't we work with the body and um, listen to it as you're saying and, yeah. um, let it be kind of a journey as opposed to this end goal, this thing that we have to, as you said, overcome and be yeah. a different person or a different human on the other side. Callum, you mentioned, uh, what, um, uh, how overcome is, is so distasteful for you, uh, which, which is hilarious. And I'll tell you why. I don't even know if you know this, but I, the, the, the kind of name that I, I called the stage of my life, um, which was my recovery, given that my name is Theo, T-H-E-O, was the overcoming um, because it was my name and it was the overcoming of this injury for me. And it's, it's interesting, you know, I honestly, it, that's sort of like, that was several years ago. And I, I, you know, I sometimes see the shirt that says the overcoming on it, or, you know, the, 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 the website no longer exists. The Instagram handle has been changed. Um, and so every once in a while I, I come across it, but you know, having, having you mention it just then, um, it's, it's interesting that, uh, you can kind of look at that, the word overcome in a couple of different ways. I think I saw it then as, you know, I want to transcend this, 
uh, this um, injury that I have and be able to 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 carry on and do the things that uh, I want to do uh, despite what happened. And in, in many ways that's true, but I think you could dig a little bit deeper and just look at it in terms of um, am I am I an enemy of my body and of my past, or am I um, you know an an ally and uh, of my body and my past, and I'm open to discovering kind of what they have yet in store. Um, and I think, you know, is it the transcend, is it the transcendence of that life experience in a, in a, in a, in a fierce and antagonistic way, or is it the transcendence with a recognition of, of what happened and how you're going to move forward? So, um, yeah, I, I, there, it's just like a couple different ways of, of seeing that. Um, but <laughs> yeah, that's my, yeah, I see it totally in the same way as well. Like, um, rather than dampening something or trying to turn down the volume and just look in the other direction, trying to integrate it and yeah, listen and just, okay, let's work together as opposed to, I mean, it's transferable into so many other aspects that surround the injury. I mean, we could go into trauma and the experience of trying to integrate back. Um, but I think if you look at it on the physical level, it's almost... Uh, almost an illustration of what happens at a larger scale for me, I think. It's so interesting. Yeah, and Theo, if you look at your transition out of that kind of title of your life or chapter of your life, how you titled that phase was about the same time that we transitioned to this new perspective on how to do rehab and how to do recovery So it's almost Mm -hmm. kind of like you recognize that for yourself, that it wasn't going to be so much of a battle or something to overcome, but again, transitioning into the new, the new system. Yeah. Was there a particular thing that brought you there or was it just accumulative over time or was it engaging with services and feeling that there was something lacking maybe that you started to see? Uh, you're, you're, you're talking about in my own process for switching yeah, to a, yeah, a new kind of approach? Yeah, in terms of see, switching that perspective. Uh, y- without question, yeah. Uh, I had been doing a couple different kinds of, of therapy, which seemed like they were working, and then at a certain point they were no longer you know, helping me generate new movement and allowing me to connect to new parts of my body. And I wondered... You know, is everything that the doctors said about the two-year mark being the end of improvement, is that all true? And that sort of began this, you know, immense self-doubting of here I am, you know, uh, at that point I was about a year and a half post-spinal injury, and I'm thinking I'm nowhere near the, uh, you know, as able as I as I want to be, or as I think I can even manage getting through the rest of my life, you know, is this actually the end? And, you know, very fortunately for me, um, at about that point, I was, I was turned on to a, a variety of other techniques and ways of understanding my body and my movement and how to change both of those that uh, really uh, put me on the path that I am now. Um, and Steph was there for, for every part of that. And I think it was sort of around the time that I was making the change for my own rehab. She was making the change for how she helps her clients and her, her SCI athletes. 
Yeah. Just, I mean, Theo has such a story about his transformative process. I think for me, um, again, I was working, I was working at an activity-based therapy facility. Um, and I don't know if your listeners are familiar, but basically it's just a gym for people with spinal cord injuries and um, neurological conditions. But, uh, it was kind of three years into that when Theo, both Theo and I started learning more about fascial systems and inner body connectivity and how non-traditional modes of communication through the body. And I was introduced to Pilates and the Pilates equipment and what that does for alignments in the body and exploring space. And, um, I specifically remember watching one of my earlier mentors, uh, her name's Alejandra Monsave. I'll just give a little shout out to her. She, she was working with someone on one of the pieces of equipment and talking through her programming philosophy. And I just remember thinking to myself after that session that it was so clear that I was barely scraping the surface of what was possible, uh, in terms of neurological healing for my clients And what I mean by that is that up to that point, most of the systems and the protocols that I was using was addressing and building strength in the non-paralyzed areas or maybe just the little bit of paralyzed areas, but wasn't fully addressing the areas that people were interested in connecting to. Yeah. And so from that point was a huge switch in my thought process on how to approach the work, which turned to much more, again, like you said, listening to the body, constant assessment, integration of the non-paralyzed areas with the paralyzed areas, you know, if we're going to label them in that way. Yeah. Um, And just much more consideration for the healing aspect of the body instead of forcing more reps and more time and more weight onto the body. It was more of this like slow progression, adding in and through. And I get the question all the time. Um, how, you know, what's the best way to, you know, what's the protocol that you use or what's the programming? Mm. And I say, there's no protocol because everyone's different. And it's really, you have to develop this intuitive sense of what to do next So it would be almost impossible for me to say, do these things X, Y, and Z. I mean, maintenance, that's easy. But in terms of progressing forward, it really has to be in the moment I make this decision or, you know, me and my my client and I, my athlete, and I make this decision of where to go next based off of what is happening right at that moment. So kind of what Theo was saying is this constant listening, constant uh, observation of what's happening in the body, which determines what comes next. From our perspective now, you, you, you can't really do recovery um if you're uh solely focused on just getting that end goal um you it it really requires that you be present with what's going on right now and making changes based on that which makes it super interesting because you never really know what's going to happen in a session and uh it, it it uh sort of from the athlete's perspective uh, it sort of stokes your curiosity about what's going on in your own body at every step of the way because you don't know what it is that you need next unless you listen. Um, so so that's that's sort of kind of where the process-centric approach comes in. I love that idea of um, perpetual rediscovery 
uh, over time without an end point, but rather just listening. And that's what I loved about and what I think makes the the project so unique in comparison to my a little bit of my exposure to the other services. But I guess at first, um, as a, to help the listeners understand, maybe if you could define how zebrafish neuro sees recovery and then my favorite one uh momo um with respect to momo that's m-m-o-m-o which is short for moving more on my own uh which was something that stephanie and i came to after uh a lot of chats and uh one particularly long one where we tried to just nail down what actually is this recovery thing and, and how possibly can we define it for such a broad spectrum of, of bodies and, and manifestations of, of paralysis. Um, and so the, the moving more on my own, the sort of the three parts of that um, moving uh, is, of course, what people are missing. Uh, that's clear from the outside. If you're, you know, now using a wheelchair, there must be some kind of movement which you're missing. But there are also all these other things like sensation and, you know, impulsive activity um, and reflexive activity, bowel bladder, um, you know, all of these things which may not be as apparent. But what we found is bringing it back again, in fact, you can use movement to address many of those, if, if not all of them, in some way. And so the moving more on my own, um, the, that moving aspect is not just the movement. It's really all of those other things as well, which are um, influenced by movement that you're doing in your exercise as well as in your just your daily life. So the more aspect is, hey, that movement, whatever it is, get it into parts of your life that it is not currently right now. So whatever you can do to expand upon your current abilities, whether it's, um, you know, it's standing in more places rather than just at home with help, or maybe it's, you know, getting out of the wheelchair and, uh, you know, hopping down on the sand at the beach. I'm sure that's uh, probably uh, pretty big where you are, Callum. Um, Whatever it is, uh, more means that uh, recovery is not defined by the end goal. It's defined by continual improvement. And then the on on my own aspect has to do with the fact that, look, I'm not interested in just getting good at doing these movements when I'm at the gym gym working with a trainer. I want to be able to do these in my daily life without needing to think about, here I go, I'm doing this hard movement and I really have to focus on it. And so getting the movement to um, be driven by the athlete means that they are taking ownership, that athlete is taking full control over the choice to do that movement, the way that movement is done, and the expression that the movement has. Um, And so all of those things kind of come to lead to uh, fully kind of incorporating that movement, no matter if it's small, like sitting up a little bit straighter, or if it's large, like running, you know, running down the road, um, all of those things lead to, um, lead to the movement being kind of internalized and as a result, a form of recovery. Realizing, like you guys have said there, um, it's not about just do this as many times as you can until it comes back. It's not that linear. Um, and, encountering from the ground up luckily through i mean through interacting with social media and so on because that was the only kind of tool i could find that would work 
to lead me to new ideas um, was a resolution that I found that worked for me that like dealt with that question of like, it's not just like, what can I do? It's not just about doing this a million times and hoping for the best. And then being, being what some would deem as in a state of denial because you want to rediscover your body, but rather at what point and where are the starting points at which you start to listen. And I love that about the book in the first section that it largely deals with um, in a very sensitive and considerate way about accountability and um, starting to take ownership of a body when largely you've probably been surrounded. Well, I, I can't speak for every athlete, SCI athlete, but for a large proportion, you've been surrounded by people telling you what you will and won't be able to do and how it will and won't look like. Yeah. Um, so I was so fascinated first off how I came to even interact with zebrafish as someone just in the suburbs in Newcastle with no access to any spinal cord injury injury information. Um, and what was that something that you consciously thought about? Like how, how can we make this some, a tool that not, is not only a solution, but people will be able to access in a different way. Yeah, Calm, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's something I thought of um, just this afternoon. And mm. I was trying to think about why was this turn of events, for example, when I was watching my mentor work with someone, why was this turn of, en- of events for me so revolutionary? Yeah. And and then I was thinking about, okay, well, how did I get my information back in that day? Like, why was this, this wasn't, the information that I was learning wasn't new to humans. Like this was stuff yeah. that was, you know, this was movement science that was out there. It just wasn't being applied to the SCI community yet. Yeah. And, and also with that in, um, in my job where I was working and similarly, similarly, the ABT facilities across the country and, and probably internationally, people kind of just kept themselves. You were kind of in your own bubble uh, within yeah. each facility. You had in-house training. Your continuing education was literally from the people that had just been there longer than you. And there wasn't a lot of sharing of information across facilities or like going in or out. So... And again, the context for for the listeners was this was before Instagram was a platform for sharing information. Yeah. This Instagram at that point, I think, had just started, and people were like taking pictures of food, like that. That's yeah. what it was. So yeah. the fact now, like, so that's why the 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 new information that was coming into us at that time was so so radical, and actually, it was so radical that. I had to step away from that job completely in order to start fresh and really dive into it. I, it wasn't really yeah. being accepted where I was at. So I kind of had to start fresh and develop the program on, on our own with Theo and a few other individuals. But what's so cool now is that Instagram has given us such a great platform to share information internationally. And that's yeah. you know where we came in contact for the first time. Yeah, and exactly. um, just the idea of sharing information is so important to me because I was so isolated in my first few years as a trainer. It was, I, I like, you know, it kind of almost, it makes me really emotional because I felt so sort of, um, 
Oh, man. What's the word I'm looking for? I felt like I wasn't allowed to go learn anything. And I know Theo too, like these new ideas that were coming in were not accepted. And so for us to be able to say, Hey world, like, look at this, this is like, here's the information. And then people are actually receiving it and we're having great feedback with it. It makes me so happy that we can finally share information comfortably and people are willing to accept the information. That was the biggest hurdle and it, and it was so frustrating for me back when I was first starting. I felt so, I felt alone, really. I felt really alone Yeah, in my learning process. And I was super young. I was like, just starting my career, you know, all you want to do is learn and get better at your job. And the answers were always just, oh, we'll go ask so-and-so. They're just, you know, and they're in their office instead of saying, hey, go to this workshop or go read this book. Yeah, so making the book for us was a really huge step for us to be able to share the information on a wider scale. Yeah, I think that's so interesting that your experience as a trainer parallels much of my experience as someone with a spinal cord injury. Oh, wow. Like, in the way of, I was just constantly, it's not, it's, yeah, okay, this is a new body. I don't know anything about this body, so I better start learning about it. Where can I read something? Who can I talk to? Who do I contact? I'm not looking for an answer. I'm looking just for information. Yes, anything. (laughs) The response I got to that was very much, please be quiet. We don't have time for that. Like, um, or, or, um, how about you, I don't know, study something else instead to kind of distract yourself or, um, look at, look at something else, like turn in the other direction, um, which is kind of the opposite of what we were talking about, about listening to your body and then starting to relearn. Um, and I think it's so interesting that there are so many peer led, initiatives and um (laughs) recovery places and things but none to as far as i know uh the information that really empowers people is for some reason kind of held back upon and that creates such a significant barrier to people yeah Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Callum, I, I, would, I would also be interested to hear if your experience parallels this, which is um, that... In, in, we often hear, you know, at least in the U.S., there's so little available for SCI, which is is pretty true. I mean, if you you know break your shin or you have a hip replacement or something, there's there's like definitely more available in terms of resources, and it's you know maybe less severe than a neurological injury. So um, you know there's a bit more of a standard protocol, and it, there isn't a, such a huge difference of of manifestations of it. But um, this notion that there isn't anything that we can find out was one of the things which I realized after a certain point that if you define uh, things that can help with spinal cord injury as the things which have been directly applied to spinal cord injury as opposed to 
understanding the human body or understanding, you know, inter interconnectivity of, of muscle systems more, for example, then all of a sudden the scope of your inquiry brightens the scope of your inquiry broadens a lot and you can actually begin to apply um, these ideas that that Steph was talking about that we were exposed to and began to dig into more to spinal cord injury in new ways. And so, you know, is that, have you found um, in Australia and in your, uh, in your quest for, for rehab that there's this kind of simultaneous, hey, there's nothing available, but also, well, those, those things that exist out there are, are not for us, so we're not going to even dig deeper. Yes. Uh, my experience was very, very much like that, in that all the things that were supposed to be specific to the neurological injury or even a large proportion of disability-specific services um, had a very fixed understanding of, okay, you're this level you're incomplete or complete. So this is what life should really look like for you. And beyond that, there's no, it's a waste of time really looking beyond that. And then, so you, like you described, think beyond that. So maybe reach out to people who train people just with injuries in general, or, and then they're generally the one, well, in my experience, they were the ones that were willing to listen. And that's where I started. I didn't start with a spinal cord injury specific trainer. I started with an exercise physiologist who just trains. I mean, she trains wheelchair users, people with amputated limbs um, through a, a regular mainstream gym. But to me, yeah, it was a solution, but that's emotionally not something you might be able to come at when you come out of an inpatient setting and, you don't want to go, you, maybe you're still kind of in this state of cognitive dissonance where you're not really identifying with your body fully yet. And to go to a able-bodied gym would be really overwhelming kind of experience. Um, and I think that's not helped by people being encouraged to view themselves as uh, you should pursue the, services that are specific to this because they have a better understanding yeah um, totally yeah. and yeah. Callum I'll I'll just add to that too from the trainer side so yeah. when I started my career right after college I was dabbling in able-bodied fitness and exercise but really yeah. I jumped straight into the neuro kind of first thing so I was working 10 hours a day just with SCI and neuro cases. But yeah. it wasn't until I moved to a Pilates studio where my schedule started to become a little bit more balanced between neuro, SCI, and what we might call able body, but like still some kind of funky stuff going on. Yeah. That I started to learn. What even is able bodied? What's that? <laughs> what even is able bodied? Yeah. <laughs> That's just the term we use, but just for simplicity. But yeah, yeah, it yeah. wasn't until I started to see. Like, oh, this is how we would train a human. <laughs> and mm. how can we use those concepts to also apply them in the SCI world? And what was the beautiful blend was that I had this breadth of uh, different types of manifestations or presentations from the neuro population so that I could understand yeah. the context. But when I started to learn just human healing and apply mm. that, that's where the magic really came in. 
So yeah. if you, if any of your listeners are here uh, listening to the podcast and yeah. you're working solely with one population, I get that niche and specialty. I love that. That That's great. But even still to this day, nine years later, I still have a balance on my, um, in my business where I'm working with neuro cases and SCI, but then I'm also working with these other conditions as well and even athletes. So there's so much to be learned across the board that we don't have to always think, oh, because this isn't an SCI modality, it's not going to work for you. And yeah. that's and that's one of the reasons why we named uh, the tagline for our book "Human Powered um, Human Powered Framework for Recovery" yeah. because it's not an SCI recovery program; it's a human healing program that's applied to SCI. Yeah, something something else on that too. Um, and Callum, you'll probably appreciate this because I know how you like digging into what words really mean. Yeah. Is what do we say that? Do I say I I am a person with spinal cord injury or do I say I had a spinal cord injury? You know, yeah. if I if I stub my toe for the next 20 minutes, am I a person with stubbed toeness <laughs> or did I just stub my toe? Um and and I I think I think that's important because um you know, from my perspective, I don't think about myself as a person with a disease going about my life impaired because of this disease. Um, I think of myself as someone who had an injury, you know, like I sprained my ankle. It's just the recovery from that is going to take my whole life. And yeah, things may never be the same, but that doesn't mean that I should think of myself as like irreparably altered. Um, even though from, you know, all outside perspectives, that is the case. Um, and so I think, to connect to what Steph was just saying, this, you know, a human powered framework for spinal cord injury recovery means that you still regard yourself as a human with human movement. It's just, we need to broaden what human movement is because it is never black and white and it's always shades of gray. And in that way, you begin to think of yourself as before I was unparalyzed, I was not paralyzed and now I'm paralyzed. You begin to think of yourself as, hey, before I had certain kinds of movement and now I have other kinds of movement. Let me see where I can, where I can bridge the gap or perhaps even uh, explore into new areas. Um, and I feel as for me, I think that's where the unity lies, I suppose, is more in the experience of when I exist at this stage of a spectrum, what are the kind of barriers or, or feeling or things that I face that do make me have a different experience? And I'd say nine times out of 10 for me, a large proportion of that isn't actually um, necessarily your physical ability, but rather things like the built environment. Um, mm -hmm. And I, or but the, it's always yeah. the interaction of, of multiple, uh, of multiple parts. Yeah. And you and others and the environment and your emotions yeah. and the tenor of the time. Exactly. But from the ground up for me, took ideas like that and made them very relatable for someone experiencing spinal cord injury in the way it take, took all of those factors and how they're unified by movement. And then my favorite idea was the kinosphere and that the kind of metaphorical relationship there between your ability to elicit change or movement through the space around you 
And then I guess at a societal level, as someone with a neurodivergent body, um, your ability or your, your sense of yourself to elicit change in the environment around you and what opportunities are afforded to you. And I was really curious when I read it. I was like, this is genius. Like, how did you come up with this idea? Kenisphere was kind of explored by this woman, Ermgar Bertinev, who, um, Callum, if you haven't gotten to chapter six yet, where we talk about the Bertinev fundamentals, but what's so amazing about her work is that she explored space and shape and body and relationships, both in the context of your physical body and then your relationship of self to world and self to your psychological growth. And yeah. she, so she um, lists out six uh, fundamental patterns of body connectivity is what she calls them. And then obviously their physical manifestation. So how does your head and your pelvis communicate? How does your right and your left sides, how does your upper and your lower mm. patterns like that? But then also yeah. what do those mean for your psychological growth and your relationship to the world? So uh-huh. for example, her first pattern of connectivity is breath. And mm. so breath is the first thing you do when you are born and that's an essential movement pattern that represents life it's essential to everything else it creates a metronome for movement for rhythm um, support stability all that in the physical sense but then if you think about breath as being your first act as a human in the world it also is what gives you purpose and identity so identity and purpose yeah and then you look at like wow how many SCI athletes have been on a ventilator or, you know, drowned in the ocean and weren't breathing for a bit and have had to relearn breathing mechanics Uh while at the same time re-identifying with their sense of self and who they are now, you know, Mm. same, same, but maybe just a little bit different. And then what is their purpose? Is it the same? Is it different? And so the intersection between movement and psychology uh-huh. and working through trauma is so yep. completely fascinating for me. Like I tell Theo all the time, this is where I'm going next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I felt like when I read it. Yeah, I think it. I, I think it's also and and Callum, the uh, book "Making Connections" is absolutely something you will love to sink your teeth into. Um, but uh, I think it's also very natural for the for including in a uh uh recovery from uh you know very seriously paralyzing injury because you do you are forced to redefine your relationship with space and with your environment and with yeah. others in so many ways because of that and so it, it it you know it would it would be unnatural not to to call attention to the fact that hey I want to achieve these movements again, but I also need to rehabilitate my relationship with space and my relationship yeah. with my with the built environment. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, I think it, as 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 you identified, um, kinesphere, the word kinesphere, which uh, I think uh, is defined um, as the the region of space which you're you're able to uh, have an impact on, um, is so. I think fundamental for the goal of SCI rehab of being um, of, of feeling again like you have control over the um, 
over over your body and the space around you because uh-huh. uh, so much of the way that paralysis impacts the body is a shrinking of potential and a shrinking of impact and presence yeah. and I, as I'm sure you well know, uh, that's something that you really feel when, you know, you're, you're sitting and everyone else is standing or mm. you're, um, you want to, you want to lead a group, but so much of how, uh, we just evolutionarily interpret leaders is the biggest and the strongest and yeah. the most dominant. And yeah. that's, um, that's something that consciously you can you can try to overcome but it's not it's not uh, as simple as just reminding yourself to be confident so no. thinking about that process thinking about you know what has been impacted there uh as you're doing rehab uh does matter a lot for um how you can program uh kind of expanded presence and expanded confidence through the movements you practice yeah no definitely that's exactly um the idea that i immediately became aware of this because i knew intuitively i'm interested in movement and rehab but i always felt this kind of separateness from a lot of the community that i would witness um in this kind of it didn't seem a lot of the time like integration or like more of that kind of overcoming that we said we discussed in the beginning and this encouragement to better replicate the able-bodied rather than listen to the body that you have um do you think that that is one of the like zebra fish is obviously you guys have obviously picked up on that and identified that but i'm always curious as to why that's such a big disconnect in the mainstream approach and not is it mainstream or you know like the the, all the neuro rehab i don't want to name anyone by name or or pick on people but um a lot of the neuro rehabs in the u.s where you see this people remortgaging their houses and selling everything to basically work towards a goal to better replicate the able-bodied Oh yeah. Well, well you, so you're, 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 you're dichotomizing the mortgaging your house to pay for expensive therapy or is over here saying, Hey, Hey, just, uh, just get on the floor and roll around. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, no, it's like, I, for me, it was like, I always looked at what, what, what is the significant barrier? I mean, I think it's a process a lot of SCI, like spinal cord injury athletes go through, um, where you think maybe people just don't know. It's all about, you know, like, maybe I need to go into different hospitals and do talks and, and this type of thing. And then you realize, Oh, it's maybe not necessarily just the information, but the approach overall. So what is the barrier that's existing to stop people from listening or from accessing this information, especially when, for example, it's chapter one is free. Um, It's online. Anyone with a smartphone can access that. Instead of, I don't know how much it costs to do a few hours of a session at any neuro rehab or like more mainstream neuro rehab gym in the US. Um, Yeah, I've always found that interesting. Yeah, Calum, I think you're asking the million dollar question. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and but also there's some grace in that too because we were in that boat for the first three years too. Yeah. And so being patient and letting people come to it on their own terms is really important because you can't force this kind of thing on someone. They have to really come to it on their own terms. Yeah. And I've seen many, many athletes that I've worked with I'll be working, you know, I'll be working with them and simultaneously seeing or going to a neuro rehab gym. Yeah. And we're, you know, and there's so much potential in those rehab gyms. They've got all the tools. They've got young, youthful energy in their trainers. So much potential and so much good that comes out of them. Uh Um, But it's always been this process and the turnover and what the person values as they um, as the time passes, I think, as yeah. Theo said, people are really excited to get moving, big dynamic movements that maybe the hospital didn't allow them to do. And with yeah. these neuro facilities, they just get to do them. They get to get up in a walker and walk, and it feels really yeah. good on their psyche and their body, probably. And uh-huh. so, you know, the last thing they want to do is be put on the floor and taught how to roll around or taught <laughs> yeah. how to breathe. Yeah. Which, which, by the way, isn't necessarily all, that's not what I do, but that's yeah, kind of like yeah, what maybe people think I do. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So it's just not, it's not sexy and it's not yeah. incredibly exciting from the first glance. It's not exciting until you experience it, until you experience the change and realize, wow, there's really something to this. Uh-huh. But it's so, it's so against the grain to address holistically, at least in the U.S., People are so external here that when you um, start to introduce more of a full body, integrated mind, body, holistic approach, it's it's labeled as woo woo or too out there, and yeah. people aren't quite ready for that. I also I also think that one of the things, at least here in the U.S. and again, Callum, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but we are. I, I think I think most of the Western world, frankly, put in the same situation would be fighting this kind of industrial revolution vestige of regimentation and standardization and the fact that, you know, uh, especially post-World War II in this country, I mean, that was what we applied to every part of our society, to our schooling, to our assembly lines, to the way that we you dealt with elder, we did elder care, you know, it's all about uh, efficiency and and regimentation and standardization. Standardized testing is like a huge, a, a terrific example of the, the um, detrimental uh, effects of of requiring, uh, you know, complete obedience to the, um, to the standard. Um, and that, that, that is certainly the case in, um, in certain parts of healthcare and, you know, to its credit, like standardization and regimentation have wonderful benefits for, you know, making sure that we meet certain levels of safety in, you know, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, commercial flying is like a thousand times safer today than it was even 25 years ago. Like that's, that's fantastic. That permits the kind of, uh, society building in, in ways that would never be possible were not for that. But at the same time, this kind of mechanistic, uh, approach to, uh, rehabilitating the body, um, is like does have its downsides and so you know we are we're a little bit allergic here to uh the touchy-feely things and we're 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 a little bit resistant to um 
being uh, being open to discovering, um, you know, kind of as as Steph said, more the woo woo side of how yeah. our, our our feelings are are influencing our movements and such. So, um, yeah. I think I think that's I think that's one of the battles we're fighting. Um, it, yeah, and it really asks that the person puts in work and internal yeah. reflection. Yeah. Like you got to look at yourself, man. And yeah, which is scary. It's scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think at least American culture is, you know, you're not supposed to really uh, look at or even address your vulnerabilities. You're just supposed to kind of like push them to the side and then, you know, no pain, no gain. Yeah. Um, but obviously that's kind of not as we've been saying over and over that's not listening to the body and addressing what's the the body in front of you and so yeah yeah i think you're bringing up a huge 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 fundamental um component of the culture itself um it'll be interesting to see how things change as people start to you know get more information um Again, why one of the reasons why we wrote the book was to just help people learn more and hopefully open people's eyes to this to new ideas. Uh-huh. Um, and so, hopefully, as people learn more and they realize, man, you know, spending twelve hours a week at this one facility may not be the answer. Yeah, let's like broaden a little bit out and see what these other people are doing. Maybe try yoga, try Pilates, try Feldenkrais. Uh-huh. I'm noticing a trend more and more. So I think we're headed in the right direction. Whereas yeah. five, just five years ago, there was only one place to go. And, and that was these neuro facilities. So I think we're in the yeah. right direction, but it's going to take yeah. time. Do you think part of the barrier is something we spoke briefly about um, before this, that kind of disconnect between identifying with your injury or disability or divergence, whatever you want to call it, um, in the sense of like, I just want to turn up for an hour or two hours. You take me through what I need to do. Then I go home and I just switch off from that because I'm not really ready to take that on. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's so yeah, evident. That you look yeah. at like, literally I have worked with SCI athletes that will pay 12 hours a week to work in a gym because they believe that that is the only place that they're going to recover. And so they need to spend all of their time there. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, dang, I don't know where you're getting that cash flow, but yeah. <laughs> like that is not sustainable, first of all. And that's not um, available to everyone. And so yeah. then that's where we started to flip our mentality and say, look, we need to be pushing more empowerment and ownership on the individual because no uh-huh. one can afford that. Even going once a week or twice a week is is hard enough. I mean, just in terms for context, uh, the going rate for a session at a neuro facility is anywhere between $100 and $120 an hour um, US. So what is that, like $150 Australian or $175 Australian? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Per hour, per hour. So um really finding yeah, so, ways to take hey. the rehab home <laughs> even, what's that even even if you don't like the woo part just do it because it's cheaper work out <laughs> oh my god yeah, yeah yeah and also trainers the overhead is way cheaper <laughs> yeah my my years my my growth has happened so exponentially faster 
after mm-hmm. my transition to kind of the new space that we were in when literally my subject was like I had like five subjects that I was studying and I was studying them so deep and yeah. learning from them just as much as they were learning from me you know we were very much learning us uh, alongside one another mm-hmm. um because, I mean, I knew the neuro kind of protocol that I was working before, that was kind of standard in old news, but all the new stuff I was really discovering, like, in the moment with my athletes. So, super transformative, really, really amazing time. I don't, I mean, I learned more in that than, I learned more in those maybe two years than I did in, like, all of my university schooling and all of my <laughs> other schooling. So, um yeah. Yeah, really taking time to yeah. learn from your clients. One, one, one more thing which occurs to me, uh, and this is backing up a little bit, but uh, with regard to the question, you know, what, what obstacles does the spinal cord injury re- rehab community face toward yeah. shifting focuses or being engaged with more, more approaches? Um, is, is the very, and Steph, I think, I think you touched on this maybe, um, is the very basic aspect that, uh, as you said, like it, it takes work, um, shifting to thinking about recovery as the process, uh, as opposed to the end result. And therefore like the, the corollary to that, like the, the natural reaction to that is you're not going to be able to satisfy your goals if you're only requiring, uh, if if your only approach to to rehab is requiring help from trainers, it has mm-hmm. to be something that you come to live through every part of your day, and you bring yeah. the awareness you build in your recovery session into the way that you you know transfer into the shower or the way that you um, you know uh, you know sit in your car when you drive. Um, yeah, and. Uh, it might be exhausting for a while, and frankly, hopefully, it is exhausting because you're thinking so much about it, and you're focusing <laughs> yeah. on all these different things, and you're seeing, you know, new reactions in your body in certain ways, or or actually, you're seeing the reactions that were always in your body, but you're seeing them uh, anew because you have new awareness. But um, my experience has been, at least, after a certain point, these things sort of just get ingrained, um, and uh, they begin to just be part of kind of the awareness that you have of your body uh, everywhere everywhere you go. Yeah. Yeah, and we call that kind of like the embodiment of the work. And yeah. so when people ask me, oh, how often should I be doing a Pilates routine? Mm. I say all the time. Yeah, like it should it just be me, in your body. It, it took me a long time to realize that aspect in terms of like what's – it's not just about what's the most you can do, but what's the most you can do in a way that's real to real life. Yes. Um, yeah. And like, I, w- I was always trying to hit the point at which I couldn't do any more because people kept telling me, don't do too much. And I would be like, I want to know what that looks like. So I'd always be like, I'll do more, I'll do more, I'll do more. And then I, when I started to switch my understanding, I realized that actually wasn't helpful um, and started to just do more in a, or do less in a more mindful way that was of more value. Yeah. And actually, yeah. I think, too, that that's you bring up a really important point on kind of the... We touched about how SCI bodies are... You know, we should be training SCI athletes like a human. But yeah. that is an aspect I think that is actually very unique to SCI athletes is that 
more is not better and harder is not better because then you're training the nervous system. You're not just training Uh the muscles and the joints. You're training the nervous system and the nervous system much more easily gets overloaded than those other systems. And so as you were saying, the more you do isn't, it can be almost detrimental or backfire a little bit because the nervous system just gets pissed off and then shuts down. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you just doing, doing, uh, the things that are mindful, doing less things in a more mindful way and more often. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And that's, I think a true testament to the way, the way that we work is that it's not just kind of this in the moment feel good. And then maybe you feel good for the rest of the day. It's like, no, this work is like, is last creating lasting change and lasting impact. Yeah, exactly. It's a solution that's, has some longevity as opposed to like boosting someone's self-worth for a short amount of time and then dissipating pretty quickly. Yeah. 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 And when I, they realize and... that actually it's really hard to do like open the door or get in the car or have a shower. Right. And yeah. a, a, another way to think about that too, is that the goal of recovery uh, in our minds should not just be to increase your maximum level of ability, but to increase your mean or median level of ability. So that yeah. like the average amount of ability that you have is also increasing. And so like, even on, you know, some like your bad days, you know, uh-huh. it's not, it's, it's not like you're sinking back down to a, a level of complete inability, but you're still able to, to tap into those movements. And so, um, you know, that, and, and that probably more than anything, the, the, the amount of kind of strength and ability that you can count on anytime is what I think probably makes the most difference for an athlete in feeling like they have freedom in their life again. Your, your body can always change. Your ability can always change and you should not let your lack of, of awareness now for what kinds of modalities may help you or what kinds of opportunities lie in your future. You should not let your lack of awareness of those now dictate what you can and can't do. Um, you know, this is, this is something that, that you'll, you'll understand well, um, from the perspective of, of someone who's, who at some point, you know, as I know it was the case for me, uh, you know, I was, uh, pretty pessimistic about what kinds of things I could accomplish in my life. Um, and that, that was based on just a limited understanding of the potential that I had and the ability to, to change. Um, so I think, uh, keeping an open mind about what's possible is one of the most important things for an individual. Uh, from the ground up um, as a text, but not only as a text, it's a text where it presents an idea that you're practicing, you, you're practicing or practiced as a trainer and athlete, as a right. process, as a reflection of a real life experience. It's not an there's lots of great ideas in there and references and things, but this is something that was learned to me, what seems through practice. And yeah. And yeah, I think that's yeah, and fascinating. I, I, I like that you brought that up and I was thinking the other day, um, you know, I got asked so many times cause this, this book took almost three years to publish yeah. And people kind of kept saying, well, why, you know, why is it taking so long? Why don't you just get it out there? It needs to get out there. 
Are you and, done yet? Yeah, are you done yet? <laughs> why is it taking so long? And one of one of the reasons why it took quite a long time was because we wanted to make sure that both sides had a voice in the book, which takes uh-huh. a lot of finesse, right? To have the technical aspects that would be valuable for a movement practitioner, but also then the information that's easily um, understood or more easily understood by someone that has no movement education or anatomy education. So that's one of the aspects. But then the second reason was, um, and Theo can attest to this, is that we would write something and say, okay, is that really what we think of it? And then Uh I would go in the studio and I'd try it out for, you know, across several sessions, maybe a couple weeks, Mm -hmm. a couple months. And I'd come back and I'd say, you know, it's actually a little bit different than that, than how we wrote it down. I mean, this was, you know, all of the stuff, all of the content in the book, as you said, is from our experiences backed up by other systems that relate to it. But it's Uh very much an experiential experience. uh, a representation of our experiences. And so there was a lot of back and forth between, okay, what are we writing? Is that really true? And how we see it in a clinical sense, let's try it out back and forth. Okay. Let's edit the text. That's not exactly what we meant to say. It looks more like this. And then even because it took so, you know, over the course of the three years, I'm still learning new content and information. Theo is still reading things and getting involved with, more physics and mechanics as he's in school. So the content evolved both from our experiences, but then also from what we were learning. And we said, wow, we want to bring a little bit more depth to that. We need to develop that more. So definitely a process building the book out. Um, as you said, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that because it was definitely a journey for us (laughs) over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, it it, it was kind of a, uh, a micro macro kind of thing where as we were writing about this process approach, we're going through the, you know, our own process ourselves of kind of discovering what the process is that we're writing about. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think like Steph and I probably both have aspects in there. Something that really made it different was like, this is, this is real. It's relatable. Um, it's been practiced and it's just encouraging other people to take on that same level of curiosity and maybe expand their horizons of whatever path it is they practice. Like the quote where you say, um, we want educated practitioners more readily accessible through local health clubs and gyms, yoga, Pilates, studios and bodywork and massage clinics, centering this network of neuro-focused trainers will take time but we must start somewhere and i was like this is the solution to the barrier that i've experienced um and these it's being practiced now by the people who've written this and when they were writing it so maybe i should listen you know (laughs) maybe there's something there that you know i'm well there definitely is something there that i'm not gonna get to um that's in great. In my own way, yeah. We're 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 so happy it resonated with you. Yeah, and 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 grateful that you're uh, you're joining in this uh, this quest to to share it more broadly. Can we can we just give a quick shout out to Australia? Yeah, yeah. about yeah. their enthusiasm for this resource. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've had we've had so many orders um, to Australia that it's been really 
amazing to watch the <laughs> how much more ex maybe not more excited but so many books unexpected amount of books going to australia um yeah. versus the u.s and, and especially well specifically the u.s but then all throughout the world there's a, a substantial number going to australia so nice work guys mm -hmm. on trying to learn something new and expand cool okay Thank you very, very much. Thanks, Callum. This was uh, this was wonderful, and we're so grateful for your uh, for your keen eye in reading and and your your sensitivity to uh, to uh, what, what we talk about. It's um, very cool to hear your perspective on it. Litmus Media. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 